0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters news.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Exchange with Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Swaha Patanaik, the global economics editor of the commentary division, and my guest today is Roger Ferguson. Roger earlier this year left TIAA, the financial services company, where he was chief executive for more than a decade. Before that, he served at the U.S. Federal Reserve on the Board of Governors between 1997 and 1999, and then as Vice Chair between 1999 and 2006. During his career, he's been a lawyer, worked in consulting with McKinsey's, and been a member of President Barack Obama's Council on Jobs and Competitiveness. Roger, thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure.
0: No, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Absolutely. The breadth of your career expertise and interests means we could go in an absolute dozen different directions with this conversation. But let's start with what's happening in the American economy and central banking, especially the Fed, where you used to serve an institution you know and knew well. And how you think what is perhaps being termed as a great experiment in central banking is going?
0: Well, uh, thank you for asking the question. how are the experiments going? Depending very much on you know, what you think the experiment is. Uh, so first, you know, how is the U.S. economy doing? Well, it turns out that the economy uh, in the U.S. Is, is, I'd say, coming back very, very strongly from uh, the recession that had been brought on by the pandemic. You know, uh, the, the most recent quarter measurement looks like we're growing roughly in the U.S. roughly ten percent. Uh, and uh, I've seen some what we call cast, i.e. taking current data and figure out what the second quarter is going to look like. And that's suggesting a growth rate of roughly about the same. Um, And so the U.S. economy is growing quite rapidly. Um, As we have this conversation, uh, most recent data shows that, uh, according to ADP, for example, that does payroll processing, that the U.S. economy may have, at least payrolls may have increased by about a million um, since the last time ADP released its numbers, and that's real payroll processing. Um, and we also see uh, unemployment claims, initial claims, which is high frequency data, continue to trend down. The most recent numbers uh, for the week of May 29th, I think, are somewhere around 380, 385,000 uh, or so initial claims, um, which is you know, a downward trend. So you know, part of the answer is you know, how things are going. If part of the job of the Fed is to support a return to growth uh, and full unemployment, they're doing that. Um, But your question is broader than that, because the Fed has also announced, uh, you know, a new approach uh, to inflation and inflation targeting. And I think of it as sort of long run average inflation targeting. Um, They came to that because um, inflation had for a very, very long time underrun the 2% target that the Fed had set uh, during the Bernanke era. And they, I think, based on some academic input and other analysis, thought that uh, it was time to develop a framework in which to would allow some gradual overshooting above the 2% target uh, in order to get average 2% over a period of time. Um, right now, I'd say the data that are coming in uh, are showing that the Fed seems likely or the economy seems likely uh, to have a period of overrunning uh, inflation. Uh, and the debate is, well, or well, the inflation target um, uh and the debate is was well, that transitory or is that permanent and you know most of the policymakers have said it appears to be transitory um, and I would say frankly markets seem to be reacting that way as well why do I say that well you know one of the most inflation sensitive parts of the market is the yield on the 10-year treasury uh, security treasury debt and that yield has been you know, pretty much range bound, suggesting that at least some market participants agree with the Fed that the current bout of inflation that we're seeing appears to be temporary. However, there are counter arguments as well. Um, and so I think the Fed is now in a position where it's watching very closely, uh, though uh, Chairman Powell hasn't said much about uh, the outlook recently some of his colleagues have. And you've already seen or they've announced that they're starting the process of very, very gradually. Uh, reducing the size of their balance sheet. So I think they're attuned to this question of, you know, is this really a temporary overshoot? I think their official official view is yes. But my sense is they're in a a watchful waiting mode to try to determine with incoming data, if in fact, uh, inflation pressures are starting to build, and maybe they have to take some action. It's a long answer. I hope it makes sense.
1: Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that my markets are taking the Fed on trust is the huge amount of credibility it's built up over decades. And the Fed we trust could be the mantra for financial markets in uh, recent times. Um, however, one of the things that can happen is expectations of consumers can become disanchored quite quickly. And the flexible average inflation targeting regime that you're talking about, which the Fed has adopted, is very fuzzy about flexible over what period of time, how much overshoot. And there's so much fuzziness that it's almost like we'll know it when we see it, which doesn't give much anchor. What sort of risk does that pose, do you think?
0: Well, you, you phrase it very, very well, which is they have put forth a um, very flexible the target that does not have exact time frames as to how much overshooting or for how long. Um, And so it does have a feel of an when we see it. Um, And indeed, uh, most recent University of Michigan, uh, inflation expectations, numbers suggest that consumers in that survey think inflation might be trending closer to 3% than 2.5%. I would not describe that as sort of unanchored. I would describe that as a reflection of inflation experiences that many people are having. Um, in America, things like gasoline prices and other prices clearly are going up. Um, And and the Fed, I think, is attuned to this issue, Uh, but you're right that their guidance uh, does not give the markets uh, very great clarity about exactly how much inflation overshoot for exactly how long. And so that does mean then that it puts greater weight on the Fed to communicate what its intentions are from statement to statement. And you know, when the chairman speaks to be as clear as he can be about, well, where do they think they are in this very flexible framework that they've now created for themselves? Um, and only by doing that, I think, well, that allow markets to anticipate and assist the Fed in doing its job. So you're correct to observe it's uh, uh, a little ambiguous, um, leaves a lot of flexibility, which I think therefore puts greater weight on the need to communicate so that the Fed and the markets are aligned around how the Fed sees things and what it is likely to do.
1: You mentioned as well earlier about the Fed's focus has always been on full employment and trying to ensure that maximum employment uh, is reached in the U.S. economy. I mean, one thing that has been tweaked, perhaps, is... um, the focus on inclusive growth, if I can say. And uh, Chair Powell has said that he's also looking at the most disadvantaged people in society. And there's been evidence from the past economic cycle that we can see the economy run a little hotter than we might have expected and allow growth to percolate down to these elements of the labor market before needing to tighten. Inclusive growth is a hugely worthwhile goal, but should it fall to central banks to do this? Are we asking rate setters just to do too much uh, and juggle too many things?
0: Well, let me start with the point that you made on how they got to this place. You know, I, I th- you're absolutely right to say that I think one of the reasons the Fed is willing now to talk about you know, segments of the labor force to get to more inclusivity is they did discover under Chair Yellen's experiences or under her leadership, that in fact the economy could run a little hotter without risking inflation pressures, and that would draw in more people into the labor force. And as that happens, by definition, the folks that are drawn in tend to be, you know, the more disadvantaged tend to be minorities. So they didn't get to this uh, place of talking about segments of the labor force. Um, willy-nilly or through political influence. They got there because of experience. And so I think what you hear Chairman Powell saying is, oh, we've learned something, Um, which is indeed we can or we had experience where we let the economy run a little hotter than we thought it could. And that proved beneficial because it created more jobs and brought in more people in the margin society into the labor force, which has many benefits. I think the challenge that you're pointing to implicitly is, Well, you know, the question is, well, have inflation dynamics changed in a right? We were, Fed officials were surprised for many, many years by how quiescent inflation was and had been running below target for a period of time, even as we said, you know, the labor market tightened and the economy appeared to be running hot. It wasn't running hot in the sense of inflation. But what worries people now is, you know, was that uh, an experience that's mainly in the past, there are changes uh, in terms of maybe shortening uh, supply chains, perhaps moving away from the force of globalization that may have created disinflationary pressures. Uh, we're finding you know, the labor force matching, getting the right people into the right jobs has apparently become more difficult. And so I think the real question is, hmm, not should central banks be thinking about different segments, We've learned that they can or have done that successfully. The question is, um, have inflation dynamics changed in a way that allows them, where perhaps they don't have the luxury, to look at all these segments the same way they did in the past? And that's the question I think that will be debated. And unfortunately, impossible to say at this stage whether or not um, this experiment of allowing economies to run hot is going to be rewarded by having more people come into the labor force. The last point I'd make is central banks require a great deal of support in democracies because they are very powerful unelected officials. Um, And the ability of uh, the chair of the central bank in the United States to at least reflect on the fact that there are different segments And that full employment means different things to different people, I think is very important. How that gets executed, we've already talked about. Um, But I wouldn't say that Chair Powell has gone way beyond his mandate by recognizing that there are classes of people who only get drawn into the labor market towards the end of an expansion. Um, um, Because I think that's an important, it's it's an honest statement of how the US economy has worked. And we've seen for a very, very long time that many people in society are worried about uh, income inequality. They're worried about wealth inequality. And I don't think it's inappropriate for the central bank to recognize that that is a legitimate economic concern, even while also recognizing that perhaps the one tool they have setting interest rates may not always be the best tool for resolving that issue. Does Does that make sense?
1: It does. Absolutely. I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned on the labour market. And there is a chunk of the labour force, which is still unemployed. And we can debate, you know, whether checks and stimulus checks were too generous, whether there's too much benefit, whatever. But people are still, companies are finding it hard to get the labour the need. And even when they pay bonuses or try and attract with higher wages, there is a scarcity of labor. Do you think there's something structural that's changed in the labor market? Or do you think this is, you know, as far as we're all guessing here, given we're all in the middle of this fog of uncertainty, um, whether this is just a post-pandemic period, it'll take a year or so to work out?
0: Will you allow me to give an answer that is yes uh, to both parts of the question? So I think we are in the you know, post-pandemic fog of trying to figure out you know, how one restarts, what kind of job is one looking for if you've been out of work. Uh, perhaps people have learned that some of those uh, service sector jobs that they uh, found useful or were not as stable as they would have liked. And so maybe individuals are being a bit more cautious about that. That is the question of this sort of uh, labor market matching. I do think some of that is going on. Uh, having said that, I think we'll also discover that there are new types of jobs in the post-pandemic world, new ways of working. We haven't really figured out the impact of this this, uh, medium that you and I are using, Zoom uh, to understand, or or Teams or Meets, all of them to understand how labor is how work is gonna be done in the future. And so I do also think we are going to be in a process that's going to take longer than just the six, nine, 12 months post-pandemic to really understand what needs to be done in terms of the new labor force. And finally, there are the questions that I I hinted at earlier or raised earlier, uh, which is, well, gee, if we're going to be a little less global and supply chains are not going to be quite as long, it takes some time to figure out you know, what those new supply chains look like and where jobs need to be located. So the reason I gave a, a general yes to your either or question is I think both things are true. We are have a question of restarting rapidly in some cases more slowly in others a very uneven reopening leading to uncertainty around job matching. And then I think we have this broader question of what is the structure of the U.S. economy that we want you know, post pandemic, um, uh, as we rethink uh, supply chains, we rethink where work is being done. And that may require some retraining. And now that will take some time.
1: And I do you think there are any productivity gains to be, you know, trying to see the silver lining in what's been a rather depressing year? Um We've learned to work in different ways. New gadgets have come on stream. It's been much faster than usual technology adoption has been. Um, do you think this is something that could kickstart the very slow productivity growth we'd seen in the previous decade?
0: Well, well like you, I'm hoping that it will. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we always had was this notion that we've invested an awful lot in things like networks and, and other ways to communicate, and yet we did not see an uptick in productivity. Well, certainly, as you point out, you know, the silver lining of uh, the very, very challenging, maybe horrific last 15 months that we've gone through here in the US and, and globally is that it has forced us all to adopt these technologies that have been around us for a period of time and do it at scale. You know, a challenge with new technology, perhaps, is it only works if there's a tipping point and the vast majority of people are using it. And now we, you know, the pandemic forced a tipping point in terms of communication technologies, and many of us, myself included, uh, are surprised, I think, at how productive uh, at least, you know, sort of uh, certain kinds of white-collar work can be. Um, And indeed, let's face it, the service sector uh, has been one of those where increasing productivity has been hardest to measure. Well, in-person services probably haven't been improved very much by this kind of of technology, but the kinds of services, think about call centers and and support functions, uh, we may now discover can be done more efficiently um, and more effectively. And hopefully that will play through to see an increase in productivity overall. So, you know, as with you, I'm waiting to see, but I'm hoping that one of the uh, benefits of the horrific year and a half that we've gone through as a society will be rapid and now universal adoption of new technologies uh, that I would hope will play through and improve productivity in parts of the service sector that don't depend on uh, in-person interactions.
1: Let me turn to another element of technology which has been very, very fast growing, um, the payments sort of world. Uh, you've recently joined the board of Klarna. I mean, what do you see happening that's upending the way people do business, how consumers interact, and the payments sort of companies that are coming up to connect the two?
0: Well, what I'm seeing is that consumers are demanding more choice in how they you know, interact in uh, commerce, i.e. how they purchase uh, activities or their purchasing activities. And so obviously for those who want complete anonymity, there's cash. Um, But, you know, that's less and less uh, uh, the mode of of operation. You know, we've seen checks, you know, gradually leaving uh, society as a payment tool. Uh, We've seen an increase in online payments, obviously. Uh, And in some societies, you know, credit cards are still very much the norm. But as you observed, and I'm now on the board of Karna, we've seen uh, this this rapid rise in, you know, sort of buy now, uh, pay later. Um, and I think there's a place for, for that for the well informed you know, consumer who wants to manage his or her cash flow in a certain way. And in many ways, uh, for some people, that could well be an improvement. Here in the US, we have um, you know, a, a subsector uh, of the financial services sector called you know, payday lending. Well, that was a style of managing cash flow. Unfortunately, it had associated with it, uh, has associated with the relatively high interest rates. Uh, And so, you know, giving people choices about managing cash flow differently for, you know, consumption that they want to make, I think is, is, has a benefit, has the potential to be, you know, quite beneficial to individuals and to society overall.
1: Uh, let me jump back to what you said about cash. You mentioned sort of very few people using cash and checks and stuff like that. One of the things that's up for debate at the moment is the utility of a central bank digital currency. And for a lot of people, it's like, well, what's the point? I can use my credit card almost as easily. It may disintermediate banks. What what is the problem that central banks are trying to solve for, apart from displacing potential rivals like stablecoin?
0: I do think the point that you made is is Uh, needs to be elaborated. Uh, So much of what exists in the world of so-called digital currency, I think, does not fit one of the fundamental characteristics of a currency, which is it's not stable. Um, And so the the value of some of these coins, let's say Bitcoin, can move quite dramatically. It's not the only one. Um, And sometimes move based on things such as tweets and commentary by high-profile individuals. Um, that makes it perhaps an interesting speculation for a subclass of individuals who want to speculate, but that's not the equivalent of, of a currency. It's not a good store of value, um, and it, it may not be uh, over periods of time a good, a good newer rare or medium of exchange. Um, so the world, I think, if we're going to go down this path, does need stable coin and stable currency. Then the second question becomes: Well, who issues that? Um, and I think most individuals, uh, perhaps, would trust the central bank more than a regular for-profit, you know, uh, high-tech organization uh, for doing that. So, you know, a reason for central banks to explore this area is to recognize that there is a may well be a class of individuals for whom transacting in in you know uh, a digital currency is preferable uh, and we find it legitimate and they want to do that with a, in an environment of trust and that's where central banks come in. So I understand fully why my, my friends and former colleagues in the central bank world certainly want to explore this. Um, now there are some limitations to how far one goes, um, uh, but I think it's worth you know, taking a look at. I, I would, to be fair, I think it's better for central banks to err on the side of curiosity in this space, as opposed to stand back completely uh, and not learn how these new payment systems you know, are operating. Uh, and so you know, I say, keep looking, keep thinking about it. There undoubtedly is a role for a trusted uh, intermediary to play in the world of, of stable coin. And central banks, you know, for good reason, uh, are high on that on that scale of trustworthiness so i would expect them to continue to experiment and to learn
1: let me switch directions a little bit and talk a little go back to the, perhaps the social issues that we touched on when we were discussing the fed and diversity i mean, it's been more than a year since george floyd died I And mean, that tragedy it took unfortunately that tragedy to trigger a, a big debate about race inequalities of opportunities and outcomes of bias. It's sad that it had to take something like that to trigger this debate when it's been the lived experience of people for so long. However, the corporate world said it was stepping up to the plate. We've seen many CEOs talk about it. You've broken ground throughout your career in the roles you've held, the role model you've been, and you've seen it from the inside from the corporate boardroom side. Do you think enough progress has been made one year on from this very sad anniversary?
0: So uh, I think some progress has been made by definition. One cannot say that enough has been made. Uh, First, let's think about the magnitude of the challenge that we're talking about. uh, The United States um, has had racial issues, racial tensions, racial inequalities going back before this existed as a country. Um, right, we had a civil war around what is basically a racial question of slavery. You know, we then had, um, you know, the civil rights movement. I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of uh, school desegregation and civil rights movement. So, you know, one cannot reasonably expect to have, you know, phenomenal progress against a, you know, centuries-old problem in, in one year. Uh, secondly, um, you know, corporate America, as important as it is, is only one part of America, uh, and so not only do you have a, a problem that's sort of deep-seated, uh, but but you you have you know you need many many institutions, many segments of society to focus on that. You know, having said that, you know, we have seen some elements of progress. You know, first, uh, in my own company, I, as you point out at the introduction recently retired as the CEO of TIAA, uh, you know the leading provider of, of retirement security in the U.S. not-for-profit sector. Well, my successor was an African-American woman. You know, she was chosen because she uh, is a great corporate leader, great business person with the potential to you know take this company, TIA to new heights of success. But it also happens to have been historic in that it was the first time an African-American leader was succeeded uh, by another. Uh, she was um, the second uh, of the current set of Fortune CEOs who's an African-American woman. I believe that number is right. Um, and so, you know, that's an element of progress. Uh, one out of many, uh, but one is better than none. Uh, second element of progress that I've seen is as awkward as it sometimes has been More and more CEOs and more and more companies are having these complex, awkward conversations about race, uh, about bias, um, uh, about uh, how to create a more inclusive workplace. This has become a major theme, uh, and it's now a theme in more boardrooms. Um, And so I do think that is an element of progress. Uh, Unfortunately, as you say, it took the murder of George Floyd to get this kicked off. And I think now the issue is uh, how do we sustain it and make it really more an integral part of conversations in the workplace? How do we drive diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, uh, you know, across uh, the business landscape uh, to the kind of conversation and action, not just conversation, but actions that need to be taken so that we can create you know, a more um, uh, successful society? The, the last one I'd make about this is, you know, you and I got into this conversation with the sort of a tone of it's the morally right thing to do. I agree with that. We should not ignore that. The data also show that it is also you know, a good thing to do from the standpoint of business. Um, I've seen some data from uh, McKinsey and Company that suggests that the companies out in the top quartile in terms of gender diversity, outperform the median in terms of profitability by I think the number is 17, 18%. I've seen a similar McKinsey study that companies that are in the top quartile in terms of ethnic diversity outperform the median in their industries by something over 30%, I believe, in terms of profitability. And so while we should talk about this as a moral issue, we should also point out that you know it, you know, diversity and inclusion, et cetera, are good for business. And then the final point I'd make is at a society level, the same thing is true. Um, You know, creating a a more equal society in terms of wealth is not a zero-sum game. You know, I've seen statistics that show that if we close the racial wealth gap here in the United States, GDP GDP of the U.S. could be 4% to 6% greater. That's a huge number. Uh, And so, you know, it's Always appropriate to talk about doing what's morally right, but when you talk about business, it's also appropriate to say, "Guess what? Doing what's morally right can also be good for the bottom line." Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of dimensions to this to this topic, and I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to. I'm glad you you broached it.
1: Let me ask you: one of the things that's a problem, perhaps, in trying to make faster progress is the pipeline. It takes time to have the inclusive education, to have accessible education, to get people through the pipeline. Most companies are not gonna, you want a good person at the CEO of the board. level. You're not gonna promote somebody who's a junior. So, I mean, but it's just too long to wait really for some of this to happen. How can we speed, tra- speed it up, fast track people perhaps? What are the best practices you've seen?
0: Well, it starts with a recognition that you want diversity in the room. Um, for good business reason. You know, there's also uh, a lot of economic writing, some of a theoretical by a fellow named Scott Page that shows that diverse teams make better decisions for lots of reasons about avoiding groupthink. So you know, a way for this to start is to say, look, diversity is going to lead to better outcomes. Uh, in America, it's actually going to lead to better outcomes from a business standpoint because we ourselves are becoming a much more diverse society. So that's item one, recognize this is, a good thing to do, and if any other good thing to do, you invest in it. Uh, secondly, you know, identify um, what I would describe as those broke, broken rungs in the, I don't like to use the phrase normally, but in the career ladder. So where is it, if we start with diversity in terms of the, the intake, where is that we're losing that diverse talent, and what can we do to repair those, those broken rungs? Um, and so I think that's important. The third thing I think is important to speed this up is to have uh, leaders understand the importance of mentorship and understand you know, where their own mentorship may fall short. People tend to mentor those that look like themselves. And guess what? You know, if we have a C-suite that's predominantly white male, they're probably going you know, to, by human nature, without further thought, mentor you know, other white males. You want to break that cycle by saying back to the point I made. If you want your company to be successful going forward, you need to create more diversity throughout the organization. That means mentoring and finding you know women, people of color, et cetera, uh, to be strong candidates for you know all the roles in the organization. And then finally, um, you know, the process of selection has got to take into consideration. Uh, you know, the, these questions of diversity that we're talking about, not in terms of quotas. I'm emphasizing the process. So what does a process look like? The process is one in which all slates of candidates should include diversity. You know, I've benefited from, you know, boards going back saying that that slate of candidates is not sufficiently diverse, bring in diversity in terms of the slate. And one of the things we've discovered in my, the company I used to lead, TIAA, it's obvious when you say it, the people doing the interviewing also have to be diverse. And so both kinds of diversity in that process are really important. So I hope those components make sense. Um, It's not going to be, we should also be patient, um, trying to overcome a a multi-generational problem. Uh, But I think, you know, we're at least some tools and techniques that we can all use to to, uh, make progress.
1: Hopeful words. I yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you. You've given over many years of service in the public sector, private sector. So it seems a bit childish to ask you after so many years of service. But what next for you? Where where you? We talked about your in you know work for Klarna. What else are you interested in? What is next for you?
0: Oh, thanks for asking. So as I told my board, I am retiring from my have retired from my role as CEO of TIAA, but I'm not retiring from the labor force. Um, and so what's next for me? I'm uh, taking on the role of the Stephen A. Tannenbaum Distinguished Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations here in the US. Uh, I am on a number of public company boards and some private company boards, uh, mainly in the fintech space and the private company. Uh, and I hope to you know, continue to have you know, these sorts of conversations bringing you know, some of my life story and experience uh, uh, to the public and it is desire, frankly, at the end of the day, I really hope to continue many uh, efforts to make the world a somewhat better place around economic inclusion, around social justice, hopefully around financial literacy and outcomes. So a range of topics that are still very, very important to me. And I hope to be active uh, pursuing them in various different venues.
1: Look forward to having you back on the podcast to talk about how that's getting on in the future as well. Those sound uh, amazingly ambitious but really worthwhile goals to to sort of carry on with. I'll um, here. We could go on for longer but thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for giving me a chance to have this conversation.
1: And uh, thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode of The Exchange which is produced by Freddie Joyner. If you enjoyed it, check out our website, breakingviews.com, where we have more podcasts as well as videos and commentary on business, finance and economics.